Hello, I'm John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart audio podcast. For more information on Ransomed Heart Ministries, our resources, and events, please visit us online at www.ransomedheart.com. Craig, give me your emotional state of being at the end of our last session, the end of our last recording. Um, blown away, amazed, just seeing how fear has gripped me in my um, reading, interpretation, understanding of Scripture, and then has stolen the hope and the joy of um, Christ from me as I think of the future. I felt naked. I felt, uh, gosh, once again, there it is. You're kidding. And also relief. Oh, yes. Enormous relief that this fear, vague, dread thing is actually false. It's warfare. Right. Not reality. Right. Right. Well, now the passages of comfort, peace, anticipation, be a good cheer. Suddenly I see those. Now those can get in. Yeah, a little clearer. Having banished fear. Friends, welcome back to part four of a series that we're doing on the return of Jesus. And what Craig and I are reacting to was last time we talked about this dread and apocalyptic horror that's kind of gotten into the church when, in fact, Scripture's saying, Jesus himself describes the end times as, no, it actually comes as a surprise. Life looks a lot like people going out to dinner. Mm -hmm. Paul says, yep, it's like a thief in the night. At the very moment, people are saying peace and safety. People don't say peace and safety during global calamity. Okay, so we were were just trying to dismantle that. And and then uh, off air afterwards, Alan brought up uh, that passage in Matthew 24 where Jesus says, you know, because these days are going to be so difficult, I'm going to cut them short on behalf of the saints. And Alan was saying that was one of the passages that added to the fear and dread. It's like, oh, my goodness, like they're so bad. Jesus has to do that. When, in fact, that verse is given to accomplish the exact opposite. The reason Jesus says that is, look, for your sake, I'm going to mitigate this. (laughs) Yeah. Right? You can just see the evil in it right there. Jesus is saying, but because I love you, I'm actually going to shorten all that. You know, I got it covered, guys. Like, for your sake. The very passage that was supposed to calm our hearts, right? Mm -hmm. The enemy is used for fear. We think another thing that the enemy has brought in is this kind of in tandem with this. I think a lot of people hear end times, hear return of Christ. And what they feel internally is some twinge of loss. And I think there is enormous relief for us. I think we have a great treasure for the saints in these discussions, dismantling just the work of the enemy and thievery that's gotten in. And last time, renouncing fear and dread and some kind of apocalyptic anxiety when the scriptures just don't allow that. And 
and counter it. They counter it with things like in the days of Noah. Yes. Just, no, no, people are going out to dinner and and Paul's saying, no, people will be saying peace and safety. You don't say peace and safety during some sort of global economic collapse, right? <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> Today, what I want so much to get to is is this idea of loss. And Craig, you were describing part of this series, but I think two before this, just a feeling of no, no, not yet. Yeah. Do you remember that? Oh, sure. Can you take us to what that was about? Yeah. John, I think we are people who attach to things and to people. And I think God gives us in this life so many beautiful, wonderful gifts Mm -hmm. and such blessings through, in my case, children and grandchildren and and just such a history of rich times. And I mean, the closest thing I have to heaven is family together, doing things, having fun, vacationing, adventuring. And those feel like heaven on earth to me. And I love that. And I don't want that to end or be altered. And There's Mm -hmm. a part of me that feels like Mm -hmm. heaven's a little bit of a crapshoot. Will I really get this? Mm -hmm. I don't want to lose this for something else. Yeah, it's a trade. Yes. Something good's coming. I get supersized, but I like this. I don't want to be supersized. Mm -hmm. So there's that. I think that names something for an awful lot of people, and I know it does for me as well. You know, when I think about what if we are living? near the return of Christ. And my thoughts go to, oh, I wanted to see Blaine and Luke get married. And, oh, I want to see their their lives as they grow up to yes. become great men, do great things for the kingdom. And yeah. I want to be there to father them in that. Yeah. And, you know, all those things, right? That I think loss, I think people associate, whether they're aware of it or not, I think that we all associate some kind of switch that you trade everything that you know mm-hmm. and love mm-hmm. in this life for something really good yes but is vague and we don't really know what it is in the life that's to come yeah i like this old worn out leather chair i don't want a new one <laughs> yeah. yeah as we were saying last time it's really connected to the bucket list idea yes i think that's just so beautifully describes it, this idea that, man, get this in before you die. You know, the I don't remember. I may have misquoted. It might be the 50 places to golf before you die and the yeah. 50 places to fish before you die and that kind of thing. But all those lists, yes. you know, 100 places in the world to see before you as if and the implication is when you die, that's it. Yeah. It's all gone. Now, you get something really great, you get something really great, but it's not this, yeah. you know? And and I wonder if we really believe, John, most of us, that we get something great. Yeah. I think for most of us, this is it. I'm not convinced we all believe there is something great awaiting us. I want to suggest to our listeners that it's not even a switch, It's actually not even that. You're not asked to generate hope and desire for vague promises of some afterlife. It's not even a switch. Gang, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 19. He's talking about his return. 
That's the subject on the table. And Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Listen carefully. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So Christ is drawing a direct correlation to the question of loss. Peter's saying, we've left everything to follow you. Like, we're experiencing loss. What does the coming kingdom have for us? And Jesus says, at the renewal of all things, he says, you get all of that back and more. Those very things, houses, fields, friendships, loves, children, relationships, he says, those things are restored to you 100-fold. He doesn't say, notice what he doesn't say, we'll receive harps, halos, and a place in the heavenly choir. He doesn't contrast it with some other offer, the switch idea. Right. right? He doesn't say, now, I know you've left, I know you've left children. And I know you've left houses and fields, meaning places that were special to you, things that are dear to you. He didn't say, I know you've left that, but kind of like, let's make a deal. (laughs) You know, you get, right, to be close to the angels in the choir. He doesn't suggest to us, quote, heavenly things that are somehow going to compensate. He says, oh, no, you, you get all that back, gang. Because he puts it in the context of at the renewal of all things. This is so crucial to your understanding of the return of Jesus and this vague sense of loss. Um, I told the story at the first podcast of the pregnant young mom that was at our Bible study. And we were talking about the return of Jesus. And just you could just see the anxiety in her face of, oh, but my baby and mm-hmm. and all those years together. And Jesus mm-hmm. is saying to you, oh, I give all that back mm-hmm. and a hundred times as much. I'm not pulling a bait and switch on you. Yeah. And this goes deeply into your understanding of what eternal life is. Okay, so let me try let me try a couple more. In the parable of the talents, you all recall the story. The master comes back and he rewards the first two servants who are his his. They are the followers of Christ. They're the lovers of God. They're the members of the household of God, the members of the kingdom. Okay, that's who they represent. And what they get is more of what they love. Right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, hey, thanks so much for taking care of the ranch. And now I'm going to send you to the heavenly service in the sky. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm actually now going to give you the ranch. Thank you for taking care of it for me. Now it's yours. Yeah. In other words, the reward is not some bizarre, vague otherness. Right? It's the life that they were living, only restored and expanded and blessed, like carry on. hundredfold. But carry on mm-hmm. in, a, 
in an even richer way. Yeah. Okay, this is so important. The idea of carry on. Okay, so I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities. I'm going to put you in charge of my estate. I'm going to give you the ranch. Jesus gives the story of the faithful and unfaithful servants, right? And we talked about the unfaithful servants, the one who says, oh, all this coming back thing, that's so far away. I'm not going to live for that. I'm not going to live like that. And he begins to, you know, get hammered and indulge himself and mistreat the servants and the master judges him. But at the end of that, Jesus says, but the faithful servant, the master gives him the estate. The very place he was living, in the very life he was living, you know, carry on. In other words, carry on with this which is so precious to you, only healed, restored, renewed. Mm -hmm. Paul in Romans 8, same thing, that the creation is groaning for the day that the sons and daughters of God are revealed, okay? And Paul calls it the day of its redemption. So creation, meaning this world that you know and love, all those places that are so precious to you, Redondo Beach and, you know, the the cabin in the woods and all that, right? Yes. Is groaning for the day of its redemption, not destruction, not destroyed, not wiped out. That's more of that apocalyptic stuff. No, Paul says, no, no, that all gets restored when you get restored. What's going on with you right now with this idea? There's this deep part of me that's just taking this in. And for some reason, John just needs to hear this. I'm startled, though I'm familiar with this being here at Ransomed Heart, how um, thirsty I am to hear this on a regular basis or how I, at least at this point in my life, I need to hear it. No, no, totally. Totally, Craig. Totally. You're not alone in that. And it points again back to that incomprehensible enchantment that Pascal was talking about. The enemy has been able to bring in fear and loss because he has so badly distorted our understanding of what comes when Christ returns. People have heard, oh, the, the destruction of everything. And then we go to the clouds. We go to heaven. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This apocalyptic destruction fear thing that the enemy has twisted. Right. There is destruction of everything that's evil. Concentration camps. Right. Those are destroyed. Human trafficking. Yep. That's destroyed. Cancer. Totally destroyed. So, yes, yes, there is destruction, but not of anything good. Right. Right? The creation itself is groaning for the day of its redemption. That means this world that you love and know, friends, has its own day of restoration and redemption. Okay? Recognizably, we don't all move to Mars. (laughs) Right? We don't all go to some star in the outer reaches of the galaxy. Right? This world. That's why Dallas Willard was trying to drive this home when he said the life that you now have in the universe that currently exists goes on. Trying to shatter, break this other apocalyptic destruction thing. So let me add a few more scriptures here. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory 
Mm. and all the angels with him. He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. It's the return of the king, okay? And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will, yep, he will separate the sheep from the goats, right? He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Yes, there is a winnowing. Yes, there is a destruction, but the destruction is of evil, okay? And the king says to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Matthew 10, anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. I mean, the whole idea is reward, recompense, right? Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded the disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. These people were living with an expectation of reward. I just want to pause for a second and make an observation on that. Where is this gone? (laughs) The idea of reward. I mean, how many Christians do you know talk about excited over, anticipate, imagine, share, converse about their reward. Yeah. Do you know one? No. What happened? Thievery! Thievery! <laughs> like, this is another example of the absolute ripoff, the yes. plunder. Yes. Nobody talks about this. Nobody yes. lives for this. But Hebrews is saying, look, Moses... All of that that he did, all that stuff, choosing the people of Israel, leading the Exodus, going through everything they went through, he did that because he was expecting this really great reward for his choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the loss of reward and the loss of any concept or talk of it is just another proof of the thievery. Yeah. John, it's just so clear that I don't, many others don't, live with that anticipation, expectation, the actual to die is gain, to live is Christ. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's so powerful. We think to die is loss. Yeah. Really. The scriptures are filled with the idea of reward. Let me just show you. Okay. Matthew 5. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Okay. Matthew 6. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men because you won't have your reward. Okay. But do your giving in secret so that your father who sees what's done in secret may reward you. Okay. And again, Matthew 10. Anyone who receives a prophet receives a prophet's reward. And Matthew 16, when the Son of Man comes in his Father's glory, he brings his reward with him. 
I mean, on and on and goes. Rejoice because great is your reward in heaven, Luke 6. On and on, right down to the book of Revelation, where Jesus says, behold, I am coming, Revelation 22, my reward is with me. So there's this deep, rich theme of reward in Scripture. As a motivation for now and and excitement. Yeah. As a motivation for sacrifice, Mm -hmm. for choices that you're making, Mm -hmm. right? When Peter says, we've actually sacrificed a lot. We've paid a high price to follow you. And Jesus says, oh, look, all of that totally given back to you. Yeah. That is your reward. So let's link these two ideas. There is a theme of reward in the scriptures. The coming of Jesus brings that reward. And what that reward is to the servants in the parable of the minas, the parable of the talents, the faithful servant, it's the ranch. It's the estate. It's the restored creation. It's this Romans 8, this earth longing for its day of restoration. There is reward. And the reward are those very things that are precious to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're the things that we've spent most of this life looking for and uh, pretending we have. And having a taste of. Yes. But the brutal thing is, is that if we're honest with ourselves, yes. it's only a taste. Yeah. And then, you know, and then you sell the cabin in the woods because the kids have moved away. Or, mm-hmm. you know, then you can't take the vacations anymore because you're losing your memory. You know, like, gain, like, the reward is far better yeah. because it's this life that's precious to us, but it cannot be taken. Okay, so restoration of all things, creation groaning for the day of its redemption, mm. okay? You have a great reward. All these things that are precious to us are restored a hundred times over. Yes. So I want to say to that sweet mother who's thinking, not yet, Jesus, not yet. You know, I want to see my kids grow up. Or the young couple that's saying, oh, but our wedding, Jesus, not yet, Mm -hmm. not yet. Or whatever it would be to you that feels like loss, Jesus is saying, oh, friends, friends, I give all of that back to you. Mm -hmm. You don't lose any of that. I want to read for our own hearts and for our listeners, a few things from the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. This is the end of the book, The Last Battle. And gang, I think C.S. Lewis believed that we were in the end times because he wrote this book and he entitled it The Last Battle. I think he saw it coming. And what happens is there is a great battle But again, gang, you are in a great battle. (laughs) (laughs) And then what happens is it appears that Aslan destroys Narnia. You know, kind of the apocalyptic stuff happens when the stars fall from the sky, kind of all of that. And it seems to fulfill sort of those dread fear things of apocalypse. And it seems to totally validate we lose what's precious to us. Okay, So it's right there in that moment in the book. And. Let me pick up there. So, said Peter, night falls on Narnia. What? Lucy? You're not crying. What, with Aslan ahead and all of us here? Don't try to stop me, Peter, said Lucy. I'm sure Aslan would not. 
I'm sure it is not wrong to mourn for Narnia. Think of all that lies dead and frozen behind that door. Yes, and I did hope, said Jill, that it might go on forever. I knew our world couldn't. I did think Narnia might. I saw it begin, said the Lord Diggory. I did not think I would live to see it die. Okay, this is so naming that fear of loss in us. Okay, sirs, said Tyrion, the ladies do well to weep. See, I do myself. I have seen my mother's death. What world but Narnia have I ever known? Right? What world but this precious life to us have we ever known? It were no virtue but great discourtesy if we did not mourn. Mm. And then they begin to make their way into what they understand to be is what? Heaven or the vague afterlife or something. It's still not quite clear to them. And they're walking along. It still seemed to be early in the morning. And the morning freshness was in the air. They kept on stopping to look around and to look behind them, partly because it was so beautiful, but partly also because there was something about it which they could not understand. Peter, said Lucy, where is this, do you suppose? I don't know, said the High King. It reminds me of somewhere, but I can't give it a name. Could it be somewhere we once stayed for a holiday when we were very, very small? It would have to have been a jolly good holiday, said Eustace. I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. Look at the colors. You couldn't get a blue like that blue on the mountains in our world. Is it not Aslan's country, said Tyrion? Not like Aslan's country on the top of that mountain beyond the eastern end of the world, said Jill. I've been there. If you ask me, said Edmund, it's like somewhere in the Narnian world. Look at those mountains ahead and the big ice mountains beyond them. Surely they're rather like the mountains we used to see from Narnia, the ones up westward beyond the waterfall. Yes, so they are, said Peter, only these are bigger. I don't think those ones are so very like anything in Narnia, said Lucy, but look there. She pointed southwards to their left and everyone stopped and turned to look. Those hills said Lucy. The nice woody ones and the blue ones behind. Aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with his forked head. And there's the pass into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away, and, oh, I don't know. More like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared thirty or forty feet up into the air, circled round, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all. Ettensmuir, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Caerparavel still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter, for Aslan told us that 
we should never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's also very different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That was a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. What Lewis is trying so earnestly from his heart to describe to Christians is heaven is not a bizarre afterlife. It's not the switch where God says, hey, I know these things that were precious to you. So sorry you lost them. But hey, right, you get, you know, a sofa (laughs) close to the throne room of God. You know, you get the world back. Scripture is very clear on that. Anyone who has left houses, lands, fathers, mothers, daughters, you get that back. Jesus makes that very clear. That The apocalyptic fears that got in have also brought in this idea of massive loss. What if there were no loss? What if actually you don't lose anything at the return of Christ, but all is restored to you? What would your reaction be? Friends, like we did at the close of the last podcast where we broke agreements with fear, I think we need to break agreements with loss, Mm. with this vague apocalyptic sense of everything is destroyed and we get good things, but it's a switch. You don't get the things that were precious to you, but you get other things. Um, Unbiblical. And that's what motivates our bucket list. There's the bucket list. But here's the thing about the bucket list. Every time someone names that for me, I think to myself, what are you talking about? You have all the time in the world. You want to go see the Greek Isles? You will. God doesn't destroy the Greek Isles and he doesn't destroy you. So, like, ease up. You know, there's, you don't have to have a bucket list. Because all those precious things you actually get at the restoration of all things. So, Father, Jesus, shatter the spell. Shatter the incomprehensible enchantment that the enemy has placed upon us Hmm. with fear and loss at the return of Christ. I'm going to pray in first person. I break agreements with loss. I break agreements with loss. I break agreement with the fear that the things that I really care about actually get taken from me. And that's why I need a bucket list. That's why I I have to go back one more time. I renounce that. I break agreements with that. I declare that When the Son of Man returns at the restoration of all things, I receive a hundredfold as much and a life that never ends, as Jesus told me. I renounce loss. 
I renounce the fear of loss. I renounce switch, where something gets traded. I renounce that. And I ask you to remove this horrible, horrible sense of loss and destruction that's been sown in my heart as I think about, conceive of the return of Jesus and moving from this life into the next life. I renounce it, and I ask you to remove it, destroy it, dismantle it. Show me how true the things that have been discussed today are. Jesus, I need you. Show me how actually true these things are today, tonight, tomorrow, this week. Show me how true this is. I declare what the scriptures declare, that the whole creation that I love is groaning for the day of its own redemption, just like the sons and daughters of God are restored, creation is restored, and we are restored to enjoy it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Friends, I hope this is helping to dismantle just the heinous stuff that's gotten in with the concepts of the church and your own concepts of the return of Jesus because it's really, really good. Mm. It's really good. And I think now you're beginning to get a sense of why at the end of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, the church is crying out, Maranatha, come, come, Jesus, come. Because everything you long for will then come too.